Stay hungry, stay foolish. Today's book is a provocation. Its goal is to help you increase your CQ and your organization's CQ. It encourages you to integrate both wonder and rigor in your daily life in order to produce new and novel products, services and experiences that deliver greater value to your community and your organization. To this end, you'll gain three major tools from this book. Catalyzing inquiry, integrating improvisation, and elevating intuition. When you build these three practices into your work on a daily basis, you will discover true creativity and its output, innovation. We welcome author of The Creativity Leap, Unleash Curiosity, Improvisation and Intuition at Work, Natalie Nixon, Welcome to the show. Thank you, Aidan. It's great to be here. Natalie, one of the overarching themes that always comes out of innovation is that innovation happens at the intersections. And I love to speak with authors and creators and consultants like yourself, because oftentimes your background is very at the intersections and you call yourself a great thing. You say you're a hybrid. Let's start with a little bit of background about you as a hybrid. It took me a while, I have to admit, to commit verbally, outwardly as a hybrid thinker, because as as so many of, of us have experienced, we very soon after elementary school, after especially after middle school in the States, uh, we're told we need to start to focus and narrow and specialize. And as, as you think about the highest achievements in academia, the doctorate level is all about proving, demonstrating that you've mastered a very specific area that will be a contribution to the field of knowledge. And I remember in my 20s, I used to feel really frustrated with my friends who worked on Wall Street, who would look kind of condescendingly at people who worked in nonprofit or the arts as folks who were kind of didn't didn't care about the important stuff, the practical stuff. And on the other hand, I thought that my friends who worked in the arts and nonprofits were a bit naive when they would say things like people who worked in corporate uh, were working for the man. I always understood the intersection. I always understood the copacetic-ness of it. And so, you know, my background is I'm American. I'm from Philadelphia on the East Coast of the United States. And I, I share about in the book, The Creativity Leap, that I went through four different types of schools by the time I graduated from high school, uh, which really exposed me to quite a bit. So I grew up in a city, which I think matters. It really exposed me to quite a bit. I'm African-American. I grew up in a home full of music. My mother's interest was classical, European classical. My father was much more, he was a jazz head. He also played acoustic upright bass. Um, he learned that in the service after high school. And, um, my parents really were, um, they were, they were compassionately strict parents, right? They had rules, there were guidelines, and they also encouraged us to the utmost to be ourselves. And I started, um, studying dance from age four. I'm a self-described nerd, uh, that started. <laughs> I, I loved school growing up. I was also really athletic. Um, that was a bit of my hybridness as well. And um, a, a big turning point for me was in college. Um, I got to the point where I had to decide what am I going to major in? I had no idea and called home in tears 
as I refer to it, a first world problem. I didn't want to disappoint my parents. They had, they had sacrificed a lot for our education. And I didn't know what to study because, you know, in my 19-year-old head, I was like, I have to get a good job at the end of all this. And they listened, listened, listened. I was talking about what I didn't like, what I'm bad at. And they said, what do you like? What do you enjoy? And finally, I confessed. It felt like a confession. Well, I really love anthropology. And I love this interdisciplinary field called Africana Studies. And almost at the same time, they said, that's what you should study. And I was like, wait. Really? You'd be okay if I, if I did a double major in that? And my father said, if you study what you love, you will have to turn away opportunities. And that began, first of all, it was a huge weight lifted off my sh shoulders. And secondly, it was one of the biggest gifts, gifts my parents gave me because they started me on the path of following my heart. So that hybridness that I've always embraced has really been because I decided early on, especially because of the permission of my parents, to be more of a yes and person. But I think it wasn't until fast forward into my 30s, my mid 30s, when I was working full time, earning a PhD in this field called design management, that I finally felt like I had found a hook on which to hang my hat. Because here finally was this field, this space where the intersection of creativity and strategy, design and business make complete sense. So it's, I would, the short, that's the long answer, but the short answer is that it's been a journey. You know, I, I was so happy to see that your parents did that because there, I don't know if you've read the book. There's a book called The Top Five Regrets of Dying by Bronnie Ware. It's a magnificent book. She, she was a palliative nurse. And she cared for people in their final years, a very special moment in elderly people's lives. And she started to record what were their top five regrets. And the number one consistently was living the life that you expected others of wanted from you rather than your own pursue your own dreams and your own wonder. So I was so happy when I saw that. And, and I wanted to just highlight something you said there, which was you mentioned the strict the compassionate strictness of your parents, but but let's call that compassionate rigor, because this idea of rigor is so important, as we'll discover in a little while, rigor, but allowing you to wonder. So for those who are wondering, what does that mean? It, in practice, it means wonder to discover who you are, but have the discipline to be able to execute on that. And that is one of the huge themes that comes out through your book. So let, let's build on that, because you share the three seeds that germinated to sprout into this book, your TED Talk, your work with entrepreneurs and the value of inquiry. These experiences grew into your three I framework, which we will explore later in the conversation. But let's talk about the origins of the book. I also just want to acknowledge and thank you for pointing that out. I never thought about that rigor. <laughs> wonder actually goes back to my childhood, you know, growing up, um, if we came in the house and said, mommy, I'm bored, she would say, only boring people get bored. <laughs> so, we, so we'd be like, I'm not boring. So we'd figure some, you know, entertain yourselves. Um, yeah, so so the, the seeds of the book are um, rooted in the, the chapter of my career when I was developing my side hustle. I've always had side hustles and whatever venture I've, I've done. But at this time, I was a professor, I was an academic. And I had 
been invited to give a TEDx Philadelphia talk in which I was proclaiming that the future of work is jazz. And that talk was actually my offering and my attempt to say in plain language a lot of what I had been writing and researching about for my, my doctoral work. And after I gave that talk, I started getting invited into companies to help them design more improvisational ways of working. Because my perspective is that that the most innovative companies and organizations are actually improvisational. And we can, we can talk about that a little later too, but I started getting invited to companies to speak, to facilitate, to consult. And at one point my husband, John said, babe, this is a thing you need to formalize this. And thus was born figure eight thinking a side hustle totally at the time. And, but in these consults, I was really being invited in to help these clients build cultures of innovation. And even after I left academia and was, you know, full-time staring my company, uh, figure eight thinking, I had this sinking sensation that we were going about it the wrong way. We were throwing around the I word. Everyone wants to innovate, innovate, innovate. And I was observing in the range of clients I had that we were, had different definitions of it. We often internally were like missing each other. We were kind of talking about it in different ways. And I also understood, so while I had this criticism, I also realized I can't critique the current state without offering an alternative way to think about this. And so I noodled on it for several months and I realized, I think what I'm really talking about is that we should be starting with creativity. However, in the hollowed halls of corporate America, if you say the word creativity out loud, if you lead with creativity, people look at you like you have three heads because people don't really understand creativity. People assume that creativity is something that only artists do. You hear remarks like, oh, I'm not creative because I can't fill in the blank paint, sing, draw, act, dance, right? We also, in a lot of our organizations, we say things like, oh, the creatives will take care of that later. It's kind of like lipstick on a pig after the more important stuff is, is being done. And the creatives typically are people who work in the design capacity, branding, graphic design, that sort of thing. And in my noggin, I was like, this is all wrong. But then I started to say, okay, so how, what's a simple, accessible way I could explain that creativity is actually the engine for innovation. So a big seed of the book came out of my practical experience of advising leaders at companies about, you know, what's your next? How do you build a more collaborative working environment? How do you um, figure out how to see what in, in drawing and art, it's called the negative space, the in-betwixt bits and pieces. So that's what started it. And because I am a nerd, um, I'm slowly calling myself a philosopher because I, I actually do think a lot of ways that, that at the end of the day, that's a lot of what I, I love to do. I, um, you know, I realized that I think creativity, the first part of, of how I was thinking about creativity was this idea of flow, which a lot of us, you know, we're, we're familiar with, with that way of thinking about it. But I wanted to give some very practical, concrete ways of, of thinking of it. And I, in my doctoral research, I um, attributed a lot of my understanding of improvisation to someone you and I both know, D. Hawk. And D. Hawk's work, 
you know, blew my mind because of this notion of chaotic systems that um, the that all complex systems, creativity is a complex system, improvisation is a complex system, have both some chaos and some order. And so you see, fast forward, how deeply influenced I have been by DeHock's work because I ultimately said, okay, the way I want to explain what creativity is, is that it's about toggling between wonder and rigor to solve problems, full stop. And then if you start thinking about creativity in that way, then you realize, okay, to be an incredible engineer, scientist, uh, a corporate accountant, a plumber, farmer, you must be super creative. The second reason I wrote the book was I'm a global keynote speaker. And as I would, I use my speaking to prototype ideas. Every time I have an opportunity to speak, I, I think, what's another way I could frame this or think through this idea? And that's what I deliver. And I, would, I, was, I was prototyping these ideas around creativity in a lot of my keynotes. And audience members would often come up and say, that was amazing. Where can I read more about this? And I blogged for Inc.com, but I quickly realized I needed one repository, one place uh, for my intellectual capital, for my IP. And so that was another big reason to write the book. So that when people say, oh, that was really cool. Where can I learn more about this? I could say, here you go. Here's a book. Read on. I love that. And I just wanted to emphasize a couple of things. Uh, firstly, DHOC, likewise, I have, I, I, and I was just saying to you before, I usually put the author's book behind me, but I have yours digitally because this was an impromptu opportunity and I just dived on it. So I read yours digitally, uh, but I put up DHOC's books behind me just to recognize him. He's still going, he's, he's 94. Last I spoke to him, he, he was still writing. Um, and I think that being driven by a purpose is so such a great way to keep yourself alive mentally and actually just have a reason to live, you know, is is so important. But coming back to you, because the real serendipity, like the serendipity this show provides, and you know yourself, the more dots you collect, the more opportunity for the dots to connect. And I write, I have a weekly practice of writing like you. And I was writing my article last week, before I started reading your book, because I only started reading it on Friday, today's Tuesday, for those people watching, that's the day we're recording on. So I only had a few days and I and I really carved time from wherever I could to actually read your book. And I was even going uh, towards traffic when I didn't need to, so I'd get stuck in traffic and pull out the iPad. <laughs> so I and I got there. But the serendipity I was going to talk was on the show two weeks ago, we had Bethany McLean, who who was the author and journalist who broke the story on Enron's scandal. And in that, we were talking about, I, I introduced the idea of chaos and order because what, what happened was they had a CEO who was really about the big idea, but didn't really care about the execution of the idea. He was like, let them do that, right? And it brought all back to mind my origins like you at my athletic origins were sport and there were so many better players than me and uh, call it talent and but they lack discipline and we all see this in our lives there's so many brilliant artists brilliant thinkers but they won't do anything with that and it's it must be frustrating from them but it's also frustrating for you and this is where I like this kind of tension of opposites between wonder and rigor chaos and order but also in an innovation perspective leadership and management so leadership or innovation leadership or creativity plus management is that is that 
coming together of these two opposites. And there's a beautiful concept I got. I got the concept from Ian McGilchrist, who's a brilliant author on the brain. And he, he said, the left and right brain come together like this tension of opposites. And it's almost like they force something forward into being. And if you think of like the tension on a bow and arrow, the bow needs to be taught in order to propel something forward. And I, I love this idea of wonder and rigor, a long way of introducing that. But we said we'd we'd freestyle and we'd improvise. So that's where I'm going with that one. I, um, to, just to build on, on your points, I oh, just, I wrote something down that um, I wrote an Inc. article some years ago where I was talking about leadership versus management and the the metaphor I used, I said that leadership is to management what skiing is to snowboarding. Um, no, sorry, sorry. What leadership? What snowboarding is to skiing? I think of, I think of leadership much more like snowboarding, a, a bit a bit more um, rock and roll and and, and <laughs> more avant garde um, and skiing. Um, I mean, obviously, there's some really um, avant garde skiing models out there too. But yeah, so I, so I I also see a distinction between leadership and management, but. Um, Oh gosh! Now I just I just lost my my thread. Um, we were talking about the tension of wonder yeah, and yeah. rigor. Yes. So I I actually the more I worked on this book, which forced me to test out my model and my ideas. You know, a, a good model is something that you can plug and play it in different contexts, and it's still amplify something. It still opens up, opens up an aperture for you. It still helps you to, to see, uh, something new or differently. And that's what, so, so, so in my tinkering with this wonder rigor model, um, what emerged for me is something I call corollary in, in high school. I loved geometry. I loved theorems and corollaries, all that thing. And, and, and here's what the corollary is for me. I don't see wonder and rigor as much. Well, obviously, I don't see them as mutually exclusive, but there's actually an interesting copacetic-ness between wonder and rigor. And the way I say it is that wonder is found in the midst of rigor and rigor cannot be sustained without wonder. So when I say that wonder is found in the midst of rigor, I came upon that idea because, you know, in the midst of a rigorous task for you as a professional athlete, it's like you got to do your reps, you got to show up, you got to practice. It's the fundamentals. Um, for me, as someone who I'm, I'm an amateur dancer, but I'm a lifelong dancer. And one of the things anyone who has any avocation, you know, it's always a great idea to go back to a beginner's class. There's always something that's going to click for you as you revisit the fundamentals. Writing the same thing. And it's the repetition. It's, it's the pushing yourself through when you're not, you know, uh, delightfully inspired. And so for me, a rigorous task are things like completing my taxes, although I have a tax accountant who does that now, but just thinking about it or completing a really laborious uh, spreadsheet, that is rigorous for me, for my type of beautiful mind. For other people's beautiful minds, that's that's not. But for mine, it is. And it's it's often in the midst of that rigor that an idea emerges, that there's something that's like, ah, you know, you have those ah moments in the midst of, of rigorous fundamental 
tasks. And I, and I talk about rigor as being about discipline, focus, time on task, uh, repetition. It's not particularly sexy. It's often very solitary. Wonder is about audacity and deep curiosity and blue sky thinking and awe and pausing. And so in the, so when I say that wonder is found in the midst of rigor, that's, that's what I'm referring to. And when I say that, um, rigor cannot be sustained without wonder, I, I'm speaking especially to those of us who may work in or lead organizations where there's just like a churn of work, right? Where you go from in our, in our pandemic times, you go from Zoom meeting or Teams meeting or Skype meeting to meeting to meeting and all in, in the efforts to attempt to innovate. But the thing is, that's not sustainable. We will burn out. And there's all this research now. Deloitte actually put out a study uh, in uh, earlier in 20, or mid-2021. They Their sample size is like 1,000 people, and they learned that 72% were already had experienced burnout. And now we have this whole term called the great resignation right? Where people are also having, because they're having these kind of existential moments about what matters. So we must build in and design wonder into our, our spatial environments, into our time. <clears throat> and, um, but we also need rigor because if, if you're constantly being audacious and curious and full of awe and in the clouds, you don't have that anchor to make it real, to manifest it so that it scales, and if you're only in the weeds all the time and churning, A, it's exhausting. <laughs> and B, um, it doesn't, it never kind of amplifies into the um magnificence that all great innovation is. So so you really need both. I I love that idea of wonder and rigor. And it reminded me of there's a quote by H. Jackson Brown, and he said talent without discipline is like an octopus on rollerblades lots of movement but no direction and <laughs> and, I, and i thought about that actually it's like wonder without rigor is the same thing there's lots of lots of thoughts but there's no delivery on those thoughts and we all know those people and perhaps you're that person and i think that's for me it's one of the things i emphasize with my children like so if they're going oh i hate this subject and i hate that subject I go, when that happens, push through it, because that will happen. That happens, daddy, daddy, I work like you as a consultant and a keynote speaker. The keynotes are great, because they're wonder, they're delivery of wonder. But behind that's all the admin and the bookings and the invoicing and the PO numbers and all that stuff that goes with it. And I explain that to them, I go, so what you're building is for the future of this, because we're going to work in a gig economy and a knowledge economy. And there's a likelihood you're going to actually be a consultant in the in the future. So I tried to get them to to lean into that idea of of rigor and discipline, because discipline's got a bad rap as a word, we tend to think of I was disciplined for doing something wrong. But I, but I wanted to just highlight one nugget, if anybody listening, if there's one line you take from this, this kind of encapsulates everything. And I'll let you dissect it a bit, Natalie, it says, you say, the first step is making creative creativity a resource that is accessible to all the people in your organization. Defining creativity as a competency consisting of wonder and rigor 
and exercise through inquiry, improvisation and intuition is one way to democratize it. Viewed from this lens, creativity becomes accessible to all, to available to all. That's the main point of your book is that you want a culture of innovation, but you don't allow people to access creativity, which leads to innovation. I'd love for you to dissect that. And um, I wrote it down this time, so I won't forget my <laughs> But um, I just, I just want, um, in addition to your wonderful um, octopus on roller skates uh, visual, you know, Picasso. Uh, I quote Picasso in, in, a, in the one of those front pages of the book. He famously said, "Inspiration exists, but it has to find you working." <laughs> Right, it's not some magical muse that comes from the clouds. Right, you you got to be grinding, you got to be showing up. That's the rigor part. Um, and your your point about the word discipline, which is um, a word that we um, we have, um, I don't know, we we just don't embrace discipline. Um, but I, I love etymology. I love thinking about the roots of of, of words and their meaning. And um, root embedded in the word discipline is disciple, and disciple is a student, right? Uh, so, so discipline is fundamentally connected with learning. Uh, you 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 can't learn if you're not making mistakes. You must. That's the best way to learn when you mess up, when you make a mistake, and um, discipline is the you know, it's, it's, it's the packaging for learning. It, 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 it facilitates learning. It, you, you must, um, have, have that. And let me just say one more thing before I answer your question about the three eyes. One additional point is that we often are conflating rigidity for rigor, right? Like rig when we're rigid, that's when we say, okay, this was our plan even though all signals and alarm bells are going off, we're going to keep to it because maybe we have to save face or we don't want to admit we're wrong, which is kind of the same thing. Or there's already so much money invested in it, right? And we all know how often that, that story ends. Rigor is contextual. Rigor takes into account context. And I liken it to... Uh, the furry little groundhog animal. I'm I'm in the state of Pennsylvania. Oh, are you? <laughs> yeah. Groundhog the day. Groundhog peeps up and says, "You know, how many more days of winter?" And but the groundhog is, you know, it's it's contextual. It's it's it's, it's you know burrowing through, but it's also taking into account um, the terrain, the environment, and so rigor. Uh, likes context. So I just wanted to mention that. So, so with the three eyes, I, I, as I was developing these ideas about creativity and, and I'm, and now it, it comes forward as a kind of a very linear, straightforward way of explaining it, but actually it was an incredibly loopy way of discovery of discovery for me. And all researchers know that, that, that research is not a straight line. And so probably, so the three eyes, let me just share first are, inquiry, improvisation, and intuition. And probably the first I that I really was steeped in was improvisation because I was steeped in all that work and Hawk's work and Frank Barrett's work um, uh, when I was doing my, my doctoral research. So that, that I, improvisation was what I was really steeped in initially. And improvisation is all about being adaptive, emergent, 
experimental saying yes and instead of yeah but or flat out no which is horrible um and the three eyes came about because i wanted to say to to be able to equip people with how do you intentionally develop this competency of creativity how do you intentionally develop this competency of being able to toggle between wonder and regular solve problems. Well, it's through inquiry, which is by uh, building your capacity for curiosity, learning how to ask new, different, better questions, embracing your memory of being a question shamed. We all have been there, right? Where we were the brave one to raise our hand and, and you know, whatever the, the, the context was, it, it might've been at a sports practice. It might've been um, with your parents. It might've been, uh, you know, trying to be one with the popular kids, whatever the, the moment was, you ask that question and it hit a wall and there goes your the rest of your future of ever being brave about asking questions, right? But inquiry is so essential. And I'm a big fan of the work of Warren Berger. I love a book by uh, Ian Leslie, uh, yeah, Ian Leslie called Curious. You know, Ian Leslie defines curiosity as the product of an information gap, which I love that definition. You need to know just a little bit about something to be curious about. We see that in our children and we when we observe that in ourselves. So curiosity, inquiry is really important. Improvisation I've already shared. And, and the thing about improvisation is sometimes people feel very intimidated by improv. Because we think of incredible jazz musicians or rap musicians or um, talented comedic improv artists. But I remind people probably between the time you woke up this morning and lunchtime, you have hacked your way through the day. You have hacked your way to support a spouse, a child, a client, a colleague. You have duct taped your way to get through work, make make a meal, um, figure something out. So being improvisational is has a spectrum, right? And, and we actually are very well equipped to improvise and to be experimental, uh, which requires us to be hyper-present, hyper-rooted in the present. And then intuition was the element of the three eyes that I was very shy about talking about, especially to businesses and business clients because after all you know i was a professor for 16 years the last six years of my academic career i taught in a business school i created uh, an mba program that integrated design thinking and how we thought about leadership and strategy and we do not talk about intuition in business school we do not talk about intuition in medical school or law school and yet to a successful entrepreneur, to a successful leader, to all the 50 plus people I interviewed for the Creativity Leap, they all acknowledge the role of intuition in strategic decision-making. And I define intuition as pattern recognition. It is that nudge that I've seen this before, I've been here before, I should go left, not right. You know, and, and when I would listen to the origin stories of successful entrepreneurs, you hear them say things like, something told me not to do the deal. I didn't do it. Something told me to work with her and not him, even though she, her pedigree wasn't as sniffy, as impressive. And I thought, what is that something that they keep acknowledging? And I think it's intuition. And 
sometimes I call intuition brain feelings. <laughs> um, and you know, since writing the book, I've become much more fascinated and reading a lot more about the physiology and neuroscience that we understand about intuition. Um, you know, I referenced the vagus nerve in the book. So the vagus nerve is part of the parasympathetic nervous system. It's actually the second longest nerve in our bodies. The first is the spinal cord. And the vagus nerve extends from our brain down through our heart into our gut. So when we say things like, my gut is telling me it literally is, <laughs> right? Or, um, you know, think on your feet or, 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 or think, think of your heart. I mean, it's because we literally have this internal wiring and sense making uh, to do that. And what's really fascinating to me is that the way the parasympathetic nervous system, so, so, so the autonomic nervous system, I think has really three components, but I, I know more about two, which are the sympathetic nervous system and the parasympathetic. And the sympathetic is um, connected to the amygdala and the reptilian brain and it's fight flight, it's breed greed. And you think about all those things, that's about expenditures, that's about expenses, that's about reacting. Think about how much of that we do in our daily lives, in our current 21st century Western civilization way of living. The parasympathetic system is all about restoration. It's all about rest. It's all about daydreaming. It's not even about meditation because meditation requires focus, right? And so it's, it's even since writing the book, it's just amazing to me how even the way my notion of wonder is all about that restorative um, space and time that we all need. I advocate taking daydream breaks, you know, which can be as short as 90 seconds. If you can afford it, 15 minutes, uh, split the difference, make it five minute daydream break. But trying to do that daily is so important. And it, for me, what it looks like is going outside and looking at the clouds drift or watching an ant crawl. And if it's cold outside, I stand by my window. And what's fascinating is that that's actually, we're making deposits back into our system. And so it's amazing how when I go back to the work at hand, I feel lighter. I feel rejuvenated. All of a sudden, that idea I was struggling with gets a little more clear. So those are the three eyes, inquiry, improv, and intuition. And my reason for adding on that framework was to give people a way to think about intentionally, you know, toggling between wonder and rigor to solve problems. Now, do you think I'm going to let you away with that answer alone? I'm going to go deeper into these. <laughs> so firstly, I love the idea of intuition. And I love the idea of pattern recognition, because it connects back to rigor and wonder where you need to collect the dots in order to connect the dots, you need some patterns in order to recognize them. So you need to do the work. And the second thing was, I'm not sure if you know the work of Joe Dispenza, Dr. Joe Dispenza, if you don't, it is just wonderful. A lot of it's like heart brain coherence, I, I do the meditation, the heart brain coherence meditation. And what's really interesting is you align your brain and your heart and then you add emotion. So say some things you're grateful for. And the reason why this is so powerful is so you align your heart and your brain. And then 
the emotion comes from your gut. So it's a feeling of gratitude for something you you're grateful for. But to go back to what you were talking about, thoughts are the language of the brain, but emotions are the language of the body. And they don't speak the same language. And that's why oftentimes we're like, oh, something's not right here. Just something's not working out. And I think that listening to that and actually, I didn't tell you this before we started. I have a practice on this show. And the listeners are sick of me saying it. But I wear a pin that reflects the show or some concept that emerges. And I have a massive collection again, collect the dots in order to connect them. And I've had this pin for a long time, and I haven't had a need to wear it. But it is if you can see it here, it's basically an intestine. <laughs> and it's got it's got flowers coming out of it. But around it, it says follow your gut. And that's, you know, for me, that's what your book said is that lean into that intuition, because there's knowledge there, there's thoughts there that are trying to emerge, they're trying to speak to you. And I know myself, anytime I haven't listened to my intuition, I've regretted it. And maybe it's, yeah, isn't it so weird? Like, it could be a client. And you're kind of going, it just doesn't feel like the chemistry's not right. And then you go, you know what, it's X amount of money, I'll do it. And then you go, I shouldn't have done it. <laughs> you know, it, all, it always happens. But I, I'm not I, I, I'm gonna jump back because you and I and just to share with our audience, we love jazz, right? So I'm I'm more into uh, cinematic orchestra, hidden orchestra, kind of remixed jazz uh you're you have a very ba ba like huge background in the classical stuff the motown stuff and you talked about frank barrett and i've reached out to frank to come on the show i learned about his work from you so i have oh, his good. book coming yeah so but the the thought the i what i loved most was this idea so bringing rigor and wonder to life. So think about jazz, think about imp improvisation, think about improv jazz, you you need to know your notes, you need to know how to play them, you need to know how to just feel where they are in order to improvise. And you mentioned what, what Frank Barrett calls solo and support. And it, it made so much sense to me. So when I oftentimes when a, a guest asks me to send my notes ahead of the time, they often react like going, what the hell of the what the hell is this? It's just a stream of consciousness. <laughs> and what I what I say is, I don't I actually don't try and ask a question. What, the way I used to my mental model was it's like volleyball, and I tee you up to just spike it out of the park and just but I much prefer the idea of solo support, because it's like, I'll play a little riff and then you'll build upon that riff. And I'm going to do that now because it's what I try to do with the show. So here's a quote I love, and I'm just going to let you build on it. So I'll do the solo here and you do the support, but you bring it much further. So here it goes. Generating something new and novel starts with a dissatisfaction with the status quo, a superiority complex and a too big to fail attitude put you at a huge disadvantage. The sense of urgency that upstarts and startups have is their elixir. The feeling that competitors are nipping at their heels is their insurance. Absolutely love that. Over to you. I have to say that a lot of my references in the book, a lot of the seeds of my, the way I, I strategize, the way I philosophize, um, are rooted in my personal identity. And in fact, that's the case for everybody. But as a black woman, um, the normative is, is not 
people who look like me. And so I, I often feel like, oh, this is a different way of doing, it, but it's actually not. So, you know, that reference to inferiority complex and superiority complex comes from an identity and a perspective as a Black American woman, as an African American woman, where, you know, I grew up hearing from my parents, um, you have to work twice as hard. You, 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 if you mess up, it's going to be more obvious because, you know, the reality is in my, in my educational experience and most of my professional experiences, I have been the only one, one of a few. And, um, you know, there's two ways that can go, right? That can go in a direction where you have analysis paralysis. It can go in a direction where you have incredible grit and resilience, which is what's happened for me. And um, but I but when I look at any group of people um, who have been marginalized or any person, because I think it for all of us, we can all point to a moment in time where we feel like we're on the margins because of class, because of gender, because of religion, because you know, whatever it is. Um that inferiority complex can be converted into good, right? It can be converted into something that gives us an extra touch of urgency, that gives us an, that that also allows us to be, you know, the, there's a new framework I'll share with you and your listeners, Aiden, that I've been uh, working on. Actually, it's not that new. I first started talking about it in 2016 in a keynote, but it's, it's becoming more um, in front for me. And it's something I call boundary spanning. And it's this idea that whenever we are on the boundaries or on the margins, as I just said, any one of us has had an experience where, that, where we feel like that, that actually is an incredible asset. Because when you're on the margins, when you're on the boundaries, you have incredible perspective, right? You, you, you can only zoom out. And when you zoom out, you have keener sense of observation. You um, are really good at actively listening. Um, you have all sorts of opportunities to develop your EQ. You um, get really good at anticipating what's next. You develop incredible political savvy because you have to, in my case, read a room within the first 60 seconds, right? And so um, this, this idea of, of being able to leverage an inferiority complex is something that I think we all can embrace. And in the case of business, yeah, I absolutely was talking to startups and to uh, people who have to be a lot more scrappy um, in order to get the funding, in order to get hired, in order to for, get the meeting, right? Um, and that's an incredible thing to leverage. And similarly, it's a cautionary tale to uh, the BMFs and the and the the, the folks who, who who you know own tremendous amount of market share and who always are on stage and always out front and always get the meeting. That's when it's when you look in your rearview mirror and there's no one back there. That's when you got to be on your game. That's when you had to be particularly. Um, alert, because that's when the scrappy startups will eat your lunch. That's when um, some when you're un, when you're unsuspecting that um, someone who you could have been partnering with, who you could have been collaborating with, um, you know, go, goes goes in a different direction ahead of you. So um, you know that observation, which I converted into thinking about strategy and creativity and innovation. 
the seed of that, the root of that has been from my own personal experiences. So I wanted to build on that because you talk about bringing then this to organizations. So building an organizational, in, um, building improvisational organization. So an organization that's capable of improvising. And again, we need rigor in order to do this. And one of the, th the things I thought about a dot I connected was uh, on the show a couple of weeks ago, we had Hubert Jolie, who's the CEO who changed Best Buy. So turnaround king turned around five companies went into the Best Buy in one in what's one of the greatest turnarounds of the decade in American corporate history. But what he did, he did it through purpose and people. And it reminded me of your La Re Republique story and about how the team in La Republique uh, prepared for improvisation on the night. They prepared through exercises, but also through an idea of a vision of what they were providing for their customers. I'd love you to share this. Republique is a phenomenal restaurant in Los Angeles. My friend um, Adrian Kenton connected me to the, the amazing leadership and team there. And what I heard from um, the folks I talked to at Republique is something very similar I, I heard when I was working with the Ritz-Carlton to understand how they design delight and amazing experiences for their guests. All, you know, there's so much to learn from the hospitality industry, the food and beverage industry, because their office is a seam, there's a seamless boundary between what their office is and what their clients are experiencing. So it is in the moment, it is in C2 where they have to be responsive. Uh, their domain is theater, right? There's, there's, there's actually a term that, um, I learned about when I was, when I was researching the Ritz Carlton and improvisational structures called scenography, which, you know, to a certain extent, restaurants, hotels, they do this to a certain extent, but they really are, are building a scene, a stage. And so there's a lot of visualization that happens with that. And there's a, there's a ton of prep, uh, behind stage, backstage, behind the curtain, before the first guest arrives, before uh, someone kind of peeks into the window and asks to see a menu. And that's the rigor part. And so what I learned about at Republique were these, these great meetings that they would have before every single evening. So of course, the chef would explain the menu and all the ingredients and what went into the design of the menu. And the sommelier would explain the wines and, 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 and such and they would have a chance to interconnect as humans with each other. I'm sure it's not unlike what, you know, athletes experience, you know, before a, a really big match. There's, there's a lot of, of um, revving each other up. There's a lot of the need to connect with each other because, yes, we're all individuals, but we have to coordinate as one. And so um, they would ask each other a lot of fun, playful, preposterous questions like, I think one was like, if you, um, you know, were stowed away on an island, like what, what, what genre of music would you want there to be, or what would be your 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 favorite tunes that you want to have access to? That sort of thing, right? You get to know each other in a really fun and playful and compelling way, and you are in your body, which is actually related to something as we were talking about earlier. We we're talking about the vagus nerve, you know, the 
we are so, we've become so disconnected from our bodies and our bodies know before our, our brains do you know you were you Aiden, you were earlier you were talking about the two different languages of our heart and our brain but when we are more in our body when we are more present and feeling then the the gap is, is shortened between brain and heart between brain and body and so when teams that we see in hospitality in the restaurant industry when they connect in this way they end up delivering a much more meaningful experience, similar to the way actors backstage are connected before they go on stage. But think how we miss out on that opportunity in our corporate environments. I, I like to say that a lot of people are, do, are dying a slow death at work. They're not invited to show up fully human. Uh, I like to jokingly say we show up to work in drag. It's a uh, you know, Joe's best hits, you know, uh, you know, the the greatest hits of, of, you know, fill in the blank colleague. And you never know, oh, my gosh, he's an incredible ballroom dancer. And because of that, he has an ability to sense make better people or he can speak a lot about the history and culture of Argentina because he really is into tango. Whatever it is, we're missing all of these data points, as you like to say, these dots to connect to make work actually more meaningful, happier, joyful, and therefore more productive. And the last thing I just want to mention is, is in the Republic example, there is this notion of play. And we forget that play actually ignites all the three eyes. Play ignites curiosity, and you must be more experimental and improvisational, and you intuit a lot more. Play is also directly connected to all of the executive functioning leadership skills we value and want to hire for. So when we are at play, we um, ask better questions, we are better at anticipating what's next, we actively listen, our observational uh, skills are a lot more keen. Um, we are improvisational. We're more experimental. All the things that we say we need and value in executive leadership st styles get ignited and amplified during play. So we've got to bring that a lot more into the way we work, in my opinion. You made me think of the Steve Jobs quote, which is, it doesn't make sense to hire smart people and tell them what to do. And that made me think of the same thing you talked about there where it doesn't make sense to copyright a job opening. <laughs> we want creativity, we want somebody who's a sense maker, you know, pattern recognition, and then bring them in and kill all those qualities once they're in the door. And that's often what happens, the environment doesn't actually enable people to do that. And that just jumped to mind I wanted to share. But I, w I wanted to again do a solo support here. Because you mentioned about dot collection or pattern recognition. But also I thought about these instances and, and I've certainly had them where you're trying to introduce a new concept or a new idea. Again, some of it's data driven, some of it's recognizing changes in the landscape and trying to articulate them to somebody who's the idea buyer, maybe it's a CFO in an organization. And then comes the yeah, there's there's a lot of data missing here. And you say, in business, it often takes guts to stand up for your intuition in the face of data and rationale. Deciding to listen to your heart is a brave and often solitary path. Gaining the stamina and endurance to follow that path requires you to cultivate 
your intuitive core. I love that. It mentions the bravery, but also the difficulty, I suppose, to articulate that, what you mean, because it's, again, emotions are the language of the body, and it's difficult. If you're in a more emotional, intuitive person, trying to articulate that to a CFO who oftentimes are more rational and data-driven, you get this clash and it's often very difficult to bridge that gap of communication. Yes, and we can make a shift away from that kind of dichotomy way of thinking if we realize, as my friend Valerie Jacobs likes to say, she's the chief growth officer at LPK uh, branding firm, she always reminds me that stories are data too, right? Sometimes we, so I, I'm a qualitative researcher, so I I love that acknowledgement that stories are data too. Here's the thing, we need both. We need the quant and we need the qualitative. The quantitative helps us to see, actually, to see patterns in the following way. Quantitative, big data, which has become super sexy and we're really in love with it, helps us to zoom out and see the 30,000 foot view, right? We see that that some sort of behaviors begin to aggregate at point two, point three nine, and then it disperses, and then it comes back together at data point number 17.8. Now, that's interesting. We see some inflections. Now, if we only stop at quant, we can make a lot of assumptions and say, oh, uh, maybe the reason why uh, it's, it came back around at, at this later point was because you know X Y Z whatever whatever our other quantitative data has been has been trending. What qualitative data does is it puts meat on the bones. So the skeleton is built out through the through the quant, right? We actually don't know why there was an inflection point on the ground at point A versus point T. And the only way we can really understand why behaviors shifted, why people started making certain different decisions um, in the aggregate is if we dive down, get on the ground and talk to people, get out of the building, ask questions, do deep observation, right? Collect stories. Um, stories are data too. And um, they're the meat on the bones of the quant. And I've given, you know, I shared a short story um, in the book about when my dad um, was dying of cancer. Um, the nurses were often the most phenomenal um, partners in that journey because they were so up close and in it all the time. And and one of my visits to him, I, I, I took a breather. He'd fallen asleep out in the hallway of the hospital hall. And I overheard some footsteps. My, I was staring out, I was daydreaming out a window. And um, I overheard a nurse who was very involved um, talking to this physician. I looked back and it, was, it looked like a physician he had on a white lab coat. And um, I heard my father's name being referenced, Mr. Weathers. And, um, and I kind of inched forward because, you know, we were in a critical state and, you know, you want as much information as possible. And I saw the doctor kind of dismiss the nurse and say, yeah, well, I, I, I need to wait for the test to come back in. And I said, I said, hi, I'm, I'm Natalie. I'm, I'm, it's my dad. And, um, and I said, you know, one of the nurses had shared with us, blah, blah, blah. And he, and I started explaining this, this anecdote and he, he interrupted me and he said, that's really irrelevant right now. 
I'm just going to wait for, for the test to come in. And I was so taken aback. It felt so dismissive. And um, I, I kind of raised up and I said, okay, but those those anecdotes, those matter too. Those are important of how my father's responding to certain things. And, and um, when he starts to, 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 to shift behaviors in X, Y, Z. So, um, you know, and then he kind of caught himself and he potted and then he went on to, to my dad's room. But we've all had variations of those kinds of moments where it's so important to be open to marrying the quant and the qual. It's what was in my mind when I said about that CFO it's the rigor meets the wonder, it's the intuition meets the data. And it's a difficult marriage. And you talk also about being a translator, being a better translator as well. But I'm, I'll move on. Um, I was preparing actually for a ver very future guest, a, a lady called Nora Bateson. And her, her dad was Gregory Bateson. And Gregory Bateson was this 20th century philosopher, contributor to anthropology, cybernetics, psychiatry, cognitive science and a lifelong storyteller. That's how he's described. But there's a quote, and you will love this, right? So I'm thinking about this quote in the context of remixing. He said, interesting phenomena occur when two or more rhythmic patterns are combined. And these phenomena illustrate very aptly the enrichment of information that occurs when one description is combined with another. So he said that years, decades ago. And you say, I, this is the dots connecting for me. Originality is a steep expectation. While toggling between wonder and rigor leads to new and the novel, originality depends on context. Being creative on an intentional basis may be a less threatening endeavor if we allowed ourselves to accept that we are regularly borrowing from one another, ourselves, our histories, and different adjacent cultures. Creativity is about the remix, repurposing, recombining, and reframing. Yeah, and um, it's about stealing like an artist, as uh, Austin Cleon likes likes to say, what, the title from his book. It, it is a lot of pressure to um, try to be totally original. And if we take that pressure off ourselves, it also means that we are more open to collaborate. We're more open to partner. And that's where that stickiness um, comes from, you know, the earlier quote you just, you just cited from um, Mr. Botton, Baton, um, what I think I heard you reference imagination that only gets, gets accentuated. Um, I mean, yeah, to a certain extent when we're to ourselves and dreaming and daydreaming and it just gets, um, Mo better when we are working with others, when we're playing with us, when we admit we don't know and we ask a question and the breadcrumbs and that can then lead us to. But um, yeah, creativity is all about the remix and because there's, there's really nothing new under the sun. And once you accept that and acknowledge that, A, it's a lot less pressure on yourself and B, it's a lot more fun. <laughs> you think about that and then you add in wonder. If wonder enables me to look in an industry that's not mine, or as you recommend, attend a conference that has nothing to do with your industry. So then you can start stealing from that industry and start applying pieces, remixing in your own industry. And this is where the book starts to come together. And one of the things you talk about, and I love this, is the idea of remixing archetypes. You say, through metaphor and lateral thinking, archetypes help brand managers think through a problem and sell products 
on the level of human connection. I love that. And I love this concept of first, having the rigor to understand archetypes and second, having the wonder to be able to remix them. It is all um, about lateral thinking. And lateral thinking is a term we use a lot in design thinking, which basically lateral thinking is when you borrow from near and far adjacencies to inform your own sector. So when I recommend that people attend a conference in a totally different industry, or right now, since we're a bit more homebound, you actually could attend a webinar offered in Tokyo if you live in Philadelphia like me, or if you live in Paris, attending something that's happening in Johannesburg. And there's two things that can happen. One is you can absolutely borrow from the ways that they handle, manage, think through similar problems. But the other thing, so so there's a there's a there's a convergence thing that happens. Oh, that's very similar. That looks like, that sounds like, that kind of reminds me of when we went through XYZ. Um, and also it's so liberating when you see something totally different that makes you, your mind triggered to all sorts of new things. Like I would have never thought to, um, to handle something that way. I mean, all the best innovations, the uh, post-its from 3M, you know? Um, so that, that came from experimentation over and over. There was a consistency of a glue that um, they actually kind of left it to the side and, and another engineer or employee at, at 3M grabbed one of the post-its and, and, and used it in his church hymnal uh, during church service one Sunday. And was, this is cool because it doesn't totally stick to the page and I can peel it off, right? But also the biomimicry that that we know was helps our aerospace in, in industry to develop. Uh, biomimicry also is the reason that we now have Velcro because someone was walking through the woods of a fuzzy sweater and it, it brushed up against um, one of those burr, uh, spiky sort of thorny buds. And it's, oh, that's interesting. That's another way to think about an adhesive. So if you work in fashion, you know, attending a, a conference in agriculture uh, or talk about about plants, you know, if, if you work in education, um, attending a, a talk, a webinar, a conference about the nautical industry, you know. Um, so there, there's so much that can be learned when we up the ante for our curiosity, when we're open to admitting we don't know and um, be, being prepared for all the, the, the serendipity and the happy, happy accidents that happen when we surround ourselves with people who aren't, don't have the same training as we do, don't have the same perspectives. I have one more solo and support for you. <laughs> and this is at the end of the book, you talk about asking us to make a leap, you ask for us to take the creativity leap, and you say, increasing your creativity quotient, the CQ I mentioned in the introduction, is about building on what has come before you remixing. And that requires building. Building is ambiguous and messy. While we may start with a plan, plans shift agendas change and assumptions are challenged. Creativity's ROI is return on inquiry, on improvisation, and on intuition. These returns can be scaled to benefit you personally, as well as organizationally. There are three leaps you encourage us to make regularly in order to optimize our creativity ROI. 
let's share these three leaps and then we'll wrap up the show. I don't know if I'm going to remember all of them because of my ideas about this have evolved, but um, one of the leaps I like to talk about a lot is we have to leap away from um, deep specialization to becoming polymaths and to um, embracing learning and cultures of learning and our, our schooling and educational systems that that veers away from I'm majoring in X, I'm a specialist in Y, to what we can call pie-shaped thinking, 3.14, blah, 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 where we have multiple uh, breadth and multiple depths, right? Because as it turns out, in a world where things are constantly rapidly changing with shorter increments, and the terrain is increasingly ambiguous, those people who are better at developing their creativity quotient through the three eyes, who um, have some depth in the sciences as well as art, who um, their breadth in athleticism has been as an athlete and also um, in management of the industry, whatever it is, they actually have the competencies to be adaptive, to ask new and different questions that will really help us. Um, another leap that's really important for us to make in addition to be, um, uh, being um, a polymath is to go from tribes to community. Um, tribes are important, right? Tribes uh, are what give us identity. Tribes are... Um, what ground us. However, if we stop there, if we only get stuck in our tribe, then we will never really grow. We will never move forward. And so the best communities and the best leaders of the most dynamic communities allow for those tribes to exist, but also uh, propel that interconnection. Um, and I'm blinking out on, on another leap that I, I think it was I, play. The play was the other leap. Oh, play, play, play. Yeah. Well, for all the reasons I was, I was saying before about the executive functioning leadership skills, and I'm not just talking about like the, the cool kids companies in Silicon Valley where there's like a ping pong table and a wall with a, with, with a dartboard. Uh, but I, I'm talking about the way we show up to meetings. So, for example, um, something that I a question prompt that I've started to really enjoy using at the start of a Zoom meeting if, or if I'm facilitating something is before we get started, um, we're going to break out just for two minutes into uh, these breakout rooms. And would you share with the person or persons in your breakout the first thing you ever spent your own money on? And what's amazing is, first of all, we think, oh gosh, how old was I? And what? And how did I earn that money? Oh, it was a lemonade stand. What did I buy with that? A, you learn so much about the people you work with. B, it creates giggles and laughter and um, it's a joyful experience. It's a very playful experience. By the way, the first thing I ever uh, spent my own money on was um, a Donna Summer cassette. And oh, I, yeah. <laughs> I, would, I would play that cassette over and over, and I would write down the lyrics and sing, and sing along. Loved Donna Summer. Um, so, so yeah, and so, so play is essential because it actually allows more of our human selves, our humanity to show up. It's joyful. Um, we can interrelate and, and relate to each other in um, a much more um, pleasant way. 
I have one last quote. I finish the show usually on a quote that I loved. I have one, an extensive one to share. And before I do that, let's, I'll give you an opportunity to think about your final message to our audience, to those people you work with. But before I do, where can people find you? You, You're a global keynote speaker, virtually and in person when you can. You're a consultant and you're an author. Where can people find out about all your work? Thank you for asking. The the website to go to is figure8thinking.com. That's F-I-G-U-R-E, the number eight thinking. And there they can find all the information they want about my writing, my speaking, um, my advisory work. And um, also people can download a free sample chapter of the book and um, hopefully be tempted to buy the book and share more. I have a course now on creativity. So there's there's lots of good stuff there. My intuition is saying, Aiden, ask why, figure eight thinking, what's the, the story behind that? Yeah, so f- <laughs> figure eight thinking for a few reasons. Number one, I love the visual of returning to, to the idea and building out. the. Uh, for me, that motion is very iterative, right? And it also is representative of flow. So that's that's why I loved that visual um, from figure eight thing. I was never a figure skater. I was never an ice skater, although I'd love to ice skate. Um, but the other is is that it's very kinesthetic, right? When you the way I learn best is tinkering and moving and making to learn. I've shared already that I dance since a very young age, since age four, and so there's a part of movement that makes sense to me. And I, I actually do think we do our best thinking on our feet in movement and in motion. So it's for the kinesthetic reasons, but also for the idea of iter- iteratively building out an idea, revisiting and building out and returning. Beautiful. So I'm going to share this quote, and it starts actually with uh, a quote you have from filmmaker Ava DuVernay. And then it goes into your own quote. So I'll make that distinction. So Ava's quote is that you quote in the book, art is seeing the world that does not exist. Civil rights activists are artists. Athletes are artists, people who imagine something that is not there. That's the quote by Ava. And you share this as a definition of art. Seeing the world that does not exist, you say, as a collective of humans on this earth, we need to piece together a world of work that does not yet exist. One where people show up fully invited to bring their whole selves to their jobs and to create. Currently, this is not the way most people get to work, but it is the optimal way, and it will result in happier employees and customers. And your audacious goal is that this book will help us make that creativity leap over the gap between what is today and the optimal work of what we must build tomorrow. I love that. Over to you, Natalie. What's your final message? My final message is for people to walk away with a certainty that creativity is not a luxury. Creativity is not something that only a few get to do. It is actually an imperative. And now more than ever in a world where we have tons of what in in systems design we call wicked challenges, uh, problems that don't have an obvious and easy uh, solution. The only way that we will see our way out of these various messes is through creativity. So let's stop treating it like a luxury. Let's stop treating it as something that we'll get to when we have more time. 
you actually have it in you. You have been practicing it on a daily basis, especially if you start to embrace the way I think about it, wonder and rigor and the three eyes, and um, keep at it. Author of The Creativity Leap, Unleash Curiosity, Improvisation and Intuition at Work, Natalie Nixon, it was a pleasure to improvise with you. Thank you, Aiden. It was awesome to talk with you. Thank you for having me.